0: bulletproof radio a state of high performance
1: today's episode is really fun to listen to you're going to be inspired and maybe a little bit worried when you're done we go as deep as what your soil is doing to you the prospects of living forever deep research on cancer and how your cells work And all sorts of cool things that are happening in the world around us. So I was really inspired and intrigued and a little bit worried by the end of this episode. You're going to love listening to the whole thing. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that scientists have figured out that we might be able to live longer by inhibiting a really common enzyme in the body— there's an enzyme called RNA polymerase 3 or POL3 that's present in all animal species, even worms. And at the University College London's Institute for Healthy Aging, they found that lifespans in worms, flies, and yeast went up 10% when they suppressed that enzyme, but only in adults. And the doctor who led the study says, there's a lot of hyper on drugs that extend lifespan and promote healthy aging, but very little is known about how they work, which is fundamental knowledge. One of the things I like to do here on Bulletproof Radio is share some of this new knowledge. And I have this idea that what if you took a whole bunch of these things that all add only 10, 20, 30 percent to your lifespan and just sort of stacked them all up with some basic knowledge, even if we're not sure, but at least directional knowledge about what they do and how we think they work. Well, your odds of not dying Of old age probably go up. And I think that that combination of things, along with careful monitoring and not being hit by falling pianos from the sky and things like that, ought to let me make it at least to 180. So I'm hoping you'll join me in that quest to live way longer than Mother Nature ever intended and to die at a time and place and by a method of your own choosing. All right. On that note, let's get going on today's episode. Today's guest is Zach Bush. He's a triple board certified physician and founder and director of M Clinic. And he's a real interesting guy because he's certified in endocrinology, metabolism, internal medicine, and end-of-life care. Basically, everything that's going on in your hormonal system, your metabolism, and even what happens at the very end of your life. And that path led him to create uh, something that a lot of my naturopath friends have been talking about recently. It's something called Restore, which is for keeping the lining of the gut intact. And we're going to talk about his story about what's really pulling our guts apart and what's going on inside your gut, what the environmental factors are, and what you can do about it. So Zach, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Dave, for having me. Excited to be here.
1: I just first want to say thanks. I know that we rescheduled our show at the last minute, and you're in New York, and I'm breaking your circadian rhythm right now because it's somewhere around midnight your time, and for me, it's only nine o'clock, and I'm sitting here wearing my True Dark Twilight glasses, so I'm looking like a superhero with red laser vision or something, but you're just sitting there at this amazingly beautiful studio with bright lights in your eyes. <laughs> you're not going to sleep tonight, but I am, so I just <laughs> want to say thanks, man.
2: I appreciate Appreciate that.
1: All right, tell me about your story here. We start looking at plant health versus human health as a doctor. What what got you going in this whole thing?
2: Yeah, it's a nonlinear journey. At the time, I was actually designing chemotherapy. I was working in a laboratory at the University of Virginia and trying to figure out how cancer cells fail to regulate their own death, and that's one of the most important functions in human cell longevity is actually knowing when to when to shut the system down and that's kind of the hallmark of cancer is that they lose the ability to turn themselves off and they are aware that they are riddled with injury and accumulation of massive dna dysfunction and yet they they can't mount this r- suicidal kind of approach to uh, allow for themselves to be replaced so that the larger organism i.e the human or the animal in which the tumor is occurring is allowed to continue on and so that was my area of expertise in kind of the cancer world was mechanisms of action of turning that on and it turns out that one of the more exciting developments that happened in my career was finding that there were some vitamin a compounds that were enabling these cancer cells to shut themselves down and commit suicide uh, the implications are pretty big because it means that suddenly you don't need immune system to overcome cancer that cancer simply eliminates itself when it realizes it's part of a larger organism And so that was an incredible journey of starting to see cancer, not as some disease that kind of crops out of nowhere, not a genetic disease, as we're told by the American Cancer Institute and everything, but actually just a breakdown in cell-cell communication. You know, it took me about four years of studying all of that before I even kind of made the connection that vitamin A comes from carrots. And so that journey of thinking, oh, my gosh, I wonder if there's something to that whole nutrition thing. Of course, I hadn't taken a single quality course on nutrition and 17 years of academic pursuit. And so then it took me another kind of four or five years to really kind of rebuild that whole belief system around wellness, disease and all of that. And ultimately in 2010, launched my own clinic that would be kind of trying to push the paradigm of nutrition forward, because even to this day, I feel like the vast majority of nutrition that is taught is really in the dark ages of basic science. And we really should be much further down this path of understanding the interactions of our human cells with the nutrients that are around us. So that was some of that bumpy journey into realizing that perhaps the plant world was important.
1: You mentioned that vitamin A comes from carrots, but that's actually more beta carotene, which isn't really vitamin A that more comes from like liver and things like that. What was this amazing plant compound that turned off cancer cells? And should we all be eating more of it? Yeah.
2: So the the compounds that you're looking at that are in that carrot and other fruits and vegetables are the rat. And so the retinoids will be then modified into the vitamin A A kind of family of categories. And they hit a number of receptors in in the cell. The most abundant receptor in the human cell is really this RXR receptor. And it will bind a vitamin A compound. And then interestingly, it has to then go on to bind another receptor of some other hormonal quality before it can then go bind the DNA and do transcription of lots of different things. The journey was less about vitamin A. It was much more about how does the cell start to gather information and how does this how does the mitochondria then take that information and turn it into fuel because the whole metabolism side of my specialty of endocrinology metabolism we had been taught that you know that's all about producing atp or adenosine triphosphate that's the only fuel the human cell runs on and we don't run on protein we don't run on glucose we don't run on fat All of this stuff is actually what bacteria will break down and and produce from your food, but they have to feed that then to the mitochondria. And so we're twice removed from anything on our plate, and that's largely why we're so in the dark ages about our beliefs about nutrition because, in fact, you're never feeding yourself. When you sit down to a plate of food, you're always feeding your bacteria, which are then modifying your behavior and the behavior of your mitochondria to produce ultimately fuel. Well, this was at a turning point in the mid 2000s when we're starting to realize that the ATP, while real critical for for being a fuel source, was not the eloquence of the mitochondria. The eloquence of the mitochondria is actually the metabolites or breakdown products that are produced on the way to ATP. And these as a family have been come to recognize as redox molecules which is a contraction of reduction and oxidation reduction is the donation of an electron oxidation is the absorption of said electron you put those together you get a redox environment you literally are creating a liquid circuit board where you've got electrical energy traveling through intracellular environments And you have to remember these intracellular environments are extremely protected, right? These are vastly different than the environment around them. pH is perfect. Osmolality is perfect. All the electrolyte balance is there. We have a thousand mechanisms that are always checking this environment to keep it perfect, largely so that these redox molecules can create the signaling capacity they do. It's kind of like the quantum computer chips that are starting to come out. Super, super, super fast. One quantum computer chip. Within about a year and a half, we'll be able to process as many calculations as all the computers on the entire planet. That's a super fast chip, but it has to be in a very special environment. It has to be down near absolute zero. That's exactly like the mitochondria. They produce so much energy and so much information—some 10,000 times the power of the sun, some you know millionfold the type faster the information than we pass through our neurons in the brain we're talking about you know each of these redox signaling molecules lasting a millionth of a second down at the cell level. So I'm trying to just give you some broad strokes of my paradigm of human biology was starting to break down from the beliefs of these slow mechanisms of Newtonian physics and biology to this really incredible world of quantum physics down at the the real fabric level. And that fabric level was starting to realize that the cancer world was just a long-term symptom of a more profound thing that you're so interested in. You've done such an incredible job educating everybody on this secret of longevity is all about cell-cell communication. A cell with uninterrupted access to information will never disease or die. And that's a really compelling idea.
1: It's really interesting. I've started to look at, at the body is like there's a couple different networks, but one of the biggest networks is these quadrillion mitochondria that are like the biome in your gut. They're sitting there, they're talking to each other all the time. And if they can't talk to each other effectively or they can't make energy effectively because the environment is wrong, the way you just described it, what you end up with is cancer or diabetes or heart disease or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or any of these other things that are taking out like 50% of people as they age and it is a communications issue and it's a a fundamental hardware issue. And Hey, we can hack hardware. We can do that all day long. Yes. Like it's such a big revolution right now. And the fact that you got there from a traditional Western, like broad spectrum background as an endocrinologist. And I'm just going to say this, endocrinologists, and I know there are a lot of them listening, but the average endocrinologist is the worst person to go to if you have a thyroid (laughs) disorder or any sort of aging-related testosterone deficiency, because they'll just look at you and say, there's nothing wrong. You're just getting old. Deal with it. I'm like, are you kidding me? No, I'm not going to deal with getting old. I'm going to (laughs) deal with getting younger. All right. Anyway, I'll get off my horse there. But anyway, for you to say what you just said with your background is highly unusual. And you're saying you came to this because you were studying cancer networks and cancer cells. And after four years, you just came across this. What happened in your career when you started saying these things that are basically hearsay in the world of, of you know, Western cancer treatment?
2: Uh, I got a lot of distance suddenly. I had <laughs> plenty of room around me. <laughs> Nobody really wanted associated. Suddenly I went from winning every teaching award at both the universities I had been in to maybe four or five people in these large auditoriums that would show up to my talks on health and healing. Because if you throw the word healing into a science talk, everybody runs the other way, thinking that you're some sort of you know, woo-woo, uh, you know, artist out there, maybe uh, maybe some, one of those crazy California doctors or something like that. But it's a really rapid way to lose the attention of scientists that are making their living and creating their worldview around chronic disease management.
1: Uh, so you basically decided you you take your hits, you'd call it like you see it, uh, which takes a, a certain amount of courage. And after you did that, what was... Uh, what was the first move you did? Like, okay, now I understand I have this paradigm. I understand that bacteria in the gut are talking to mitochondria in the body. So how did you, with that new knowledge, how did you go about doing something with that in your clinic?
2: Yeah, at this stage, we hadn't realized, I hadn't realized at all. And I think as a field, there was no talk about how the bacteria were talking across this spectrum. At this point, redox molecules was really something that was you know regarded as a mitochondrial event inside the human cells. There was no concept of how, the bacteria could possibly be talking inside the cells. However, There were some interesting rumblings coming from some of those crazy hippie doctors in California, UCSD, UCSF were starting to put out some papers on the microbiome genetics. So they were starting to look at the genomics of the microbiome and they were finding some remarkable correlations of if this bacteria is present, then you're going to get this cancer. If these bacteria are missing, you're going to get this cancer. So we were starting to see these correlations between microbiome genomics and human disease outcomes. And that was complete poppycock crazy stuff (laughs) talking in our in our belief system around how cancer happened and what it was as a a disease process and everything else and and so at that point there was still no while correlations were being shown there was no causative you know process understood and so when I departed academia you know I kind of came to the conclusion that I wasn't ever going to find an academic institute that was going to let me go down the avenue that i was starting to think i needed to do which was understanding nutrition at the level of reversing chronic disease and so i started out in rural virginia and i went to one of the poorest counties in virginia with the intention of setting something up because i figured with chronic disease epidemics bursting out all over the country the least interesting thing was to go to something like Santa Barbara and create a plant-based anti-inflammatory integrative medicine clinic and help Santa Barbara survive. If if we're going to actually survive as a species, we're going to have to solve the the problem on a pretty global level because the financial weight of carrying 80% of the population very sick is too much for any of us to carry. And so really set out in this kind of rural environment that was a total food desert to think if we could create a nutrition program here that would really change the paradigm of chronic disease, then we could crack the code. So that was the altruistic kind of blue sky vision we had. And so when I say we, it was just me initially, (laughs) but very quickly, as soon as I opened the door, some really wonderful people started to arrive and many of them still work with me today. And so the mission started to draw the right people to it and at that point we were i'm kind of a go big or go home kind of guy so we were going really ridiculously extreme on getting these nutrients out of mostly vegetables and fruit some of the fats too from nuts seeds etc that we knew were going to support these fundamental processes down at the cell level of the mitochondrial metabolism redox molecules etc and the next thing that happened was always the best thing that that happens really is nothing went as planned, right? <laughs> and so suddenly we saw, you know, 30, 40% of our population doing exactly what we thought was going to happen. You know, like diabetes was disappearing, you know, chronic inflammatory, well, autoimmune you,
1: disease. You, you gave them some plants? Like, what did you do? <laughs> you get yeah, 40% so we were juicing of people, people, better. people
2: like crazy. We went on okay. these high intense, um, you know, combinations of short and long-term fasting with, High intensity nutrient dense uh, diets. Got it. Uh, very low protein. The protein tends yep. to stress the liver and it everything does. else. Low protein, high nutrient, you know, kind of leave calories out of the equation and go for intense nutrient density. And so a lot of juicing, a lot of fermentation, a lot of stuff, you know, trying to get nature's processing rather than
1: human so processing. Not, so so that's. Lots of polyphenols, yeah. essentially. And Pond, uh, yeah. were, were these on a low fat So basically, just vegetable juice was most mostly what you're doing, or were you adding fats in as well?
2: Lots of fats in there, oh. too. And, and every year that I've been doing this, I add more fat. Okay. You
1: know? Me, too. <laughs> and so,
2: yeah. And so, really, it's, you know, the fat sources we were using heavily are the macadamia nut and the avocado in smoothies and things like that. Yeah. And so, we were loading this. And the the thing that really changed my whole worldview yet again was the fact that there was 20, 30% of people that, were seeming to respond and then quickly plateau and I couldn't get them any better. And then there was this huge chunk, this 40% or so of my patients that a couple years into this process, you know, I had to come to terms with the fact that they were doing it right. Cause initially when I saw them failing, I just assumed you're just not doing it right. I yeah. told you to do this and blah, blah, blah. So I kept blaming them, but I started to develop real relationship with these people. And I, in academia, you're never a full-time doctor. You never take full responsibility for anything. I was in a rural clinic 24 seven alone. I had to take full responsibility for these people and the beautiful result of that is real relationship. And so I was starting to trust these people, these patients of mine, more than I trusted my colleagues in academia. (laughs) And they became my colleagues. They became like your community that you've built, the biohacking community. My hat's off to all of you. You are an inspiration to the world because you guys are really taking responsibility for yourselves, number one. But then you're immediately applying the truths that you're finding into a communication network of your own to create a, a wave outside of you. And that's what our patients were doing. They were saying, look, I, doc, I, I want to heal through this process, but I'm doing exactly what you said, and I am getting worse. And they were getting worse. Inflammation markers were getting going up. All of their hypothalamic uh, signaling going to their entire endocrine system was showing huge signs of increasing stress, not decreasing stress. They just were not behaving like the textbooks. And so this was the moment that I went from kind of first paradigm shift into maybe plants are good for us. Maybe plants could reverse disease. Maybe plants could be more powerful than chemotherapy to treat cancer to the moment where it was like, I wonder if there's something deeper than the plant or is there something wrong with the plants that we're feeding? Is there something that's failing in the plant itself that's changed the science that I'm trying to apply from the 1960s and 70s when this science was being done very well? And at that moment, we started to research soil and that changed everything you know for thousands of years the pharmaceutical industry and the herbalism community and chinese medicine have been looking to the plants there has been a paucity of research and investigation into the deeper story underneath the plant of where the plant's getting that magic there you go how does a plant create the the phenols how does the and the alkaloids are the most extraordinary story coming out of the plants. And plants don't have mitochondria uh, as we do. They have these little plastids that look like mitochondria. Uh, they very interesting little organisms. Bacteria and fungi don't have any of these guys. So we're now going into realms that was really departing from any understanding of the biology I'd been trained in, and so it was forcing us to ask questions we never asked. On page forty of a white paper on dirt, and you know. It was 90-page white paper. A, I'd never seen a 90-page white paper, and B, I couldn't believe somebody had cared about dirt enough to w- write that much of yes. their career in there. And so pouring through this dirt paper on page 40 is a huge molecule that on the right side of this, it was in two dimensions, but my brain did something really fantastic at that moment. And I think my purpose is here. This is why I was born. This is why I did ridiculous journey in academia was just for this moment, the blinders came off the three dimensional structure on the right side of that molecule looked like the chemotherapy that I'd been making years previous. At that moment, just total goosebumps. I think we just found a, fundamental truth that's been missing from human biology is that there is medicinal quality to the dirt. Mm -hmm. There's medicinal quality down there that if it's, if we divorce ourselves from it, the plant will never get it. And if the plant never gets it, we will never get it. If we never get it, the bacteria will never get it. The mitochondrial never, it was just a quick cascade of, oh my gosh, what did we do to the soil?
1: I I gotta, I gotta just tell you this. One of the reasons I live where I live is I can grow all my own food. The dirt in my garden comes from the bottom of a pond that was on an organic farm for a hundred years where all this stuff, (laughs) right? There's a reason I do these things (laughs) and like, yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I can do that. I also live in a cheap part of the world so I can afford to do it, but it, it, it all comes down to soil, right? You break the soil, which is a living organism, and everything up from there is going to go down, including us, because we're soil dependent. All right. Yes. What is this molecule? Everyone listening is like, you know, how, how do I go eat some dirt? <laughs> yeah. So this, this
2: molecule turns out, you know, the, the second massive goosebump moment was when we figured out that answer, because initially it was just saying, well, this is, you know, in dirt. It's a major component of, of really good quality dirt. And so we were starting to look into that and it, looked, it looks on one end of it sort of like, you know, a young coal. It's a lot yeah. of carbon structure. It's a lot of almost crystalloid structure. That's common in organic chemistry in humans and otherwise. The unique stuff on the right side of the stuff was clear that it wasn't going to work if it was, you know, in anything but the most vibrant living soil. But long story short, when a couple of weeks later I f- figured out that that was coming from bacteria, That was the closing of the loop because like I said, my research had been in the mitochondria and these redox molecules that they made to regulate cell longevity, cell death, regulate cancer, et cetera. We had been studying that, but we knew those those redox molecules could never exit the cell environment. They last for a millionth of a second in a really quality controlled environment. There's no way they were going to exit the human cell and go into the adversity of the greater environment and, and create any communication. This carbon backbone on this molecule and the molecule really has a million different variants. And so each species tends to make, you know, 10 to 15 versions of this. Each species of bacteria, fungi, et cetera. And so in a typical really healthy soil, like it sounds like you have in your garden, you've probably got a couple million variants of this molecule. The issue is that the more complexity you get in the variety of these they're like snowflakes we actually that's what we call them in the lab is carbon snowflakes everybody's kind of familiar with the snowflake each one looking different than the next the magic seems to happen when you line up a million different variants and even better a hundred million or a billion different variants of that molecule you suddenly create a liquid circuit board environment where electrons can travel in a million different directions at once you create literally an intelligent structure that's got a carbon backbone, which means it's going to survive in all kinds of noxious environments. The pH of the soil changes from morning to night. pH in your mouth as you swallow your food changes from 7.5 to 2.4 back to 8.2 and about 14 inches. And so you've got this huge adversity just in pH alone, let alone the osmolality and everything else, that the bacteria and the fungi are going to have to communicate through. And so the molecule we found is a carbon backbone molecule that's got redox potential whole family of molecules that are turned back on and have that redox or electron exchange capacity, we've termed terra You hydrite. Know, it's a hydrogen active hydrite molecule from the earth, Terra. So terahydrite is the family of molecules that we've named that's coming from this huge uh, you know, population of bacteria and fungi that should be in your soil.
1: And these are humic and fulvic acid, essentially, uh, variants of that?
2: Yeah. So it's another version of a soil extract. So okay. uh, first came shilajit, then humic acids, then fulvic acids. Shilajit is primarily a huge mineral density. And so you can get a really potent mineral load. The problem with shilajit is it's profoundly oxidative it, and humic acid falls in the same category. Uh, fulvic acid is all oxidative as well, but it has you know, less of the, the oxidative stress than you'll get from something like shilajit. When I say oxidative, it means that it has this huge ability to rip electrons off of other things. It literally is rusting the environment. When you put shilajit or humic acid in the environment, it will suck electrons away from things. Electron potential is literally health. Disease is all positive charge absorption of electrons, loss of electron potential. And so, uh, what's happened in, erroneously, and we, all, we we often do this in the nutrition world where we find something like, "Oh, that sounds really good for you know some." part of the bone, like calcium. We've done this as endocrinologists for years. You should take calcium because your bone's made out of calcium. Of course, if we drink milk and eat cheese and intake all this calcium, we lose bone mineral density. And so again, with shilajit or humic acid, tons of minerals, enormous load. And you think, wow, the body's made of minerals, must need that. Well, if you take a concentrated load of minerals, you're gonna actually demineralize the teeth. You can lose the enamel right off your teeth if you're chronically taking humic and shilajit and things like that and you, you're doing oxidative damage to the kidney. So through and through from stem to stern, you can do damage with these things. You move down into fulvic acid. Fulvic acids are a much more tiny conglomerations. So the, the shiligeets and the humics are very huge colloidal structures, tons of mineral content. If the fulvic acids have much less of the, the uh, mineral content and it has a lot more ability to move through tissue planes. And so it's very mobile in the body. I think fulvic acids are a lot safer than humix and everything else. But even the ex- extracts that we take, which are basically fulvic type compounds that we're pulling out of the soil, even those are very oxidative. They kill kidney tubules on contact. They, they pull electrons across and they don't do redox signaling. They don't do a communication piece of the puzzle for us. So th- to do that, we, we bring that back to our labs and we, we push them through substrates of our catalysts of, of min- mineral salts that will get the hydrogen to bond back onto those, those oxidative compounds. And once you can get the hydrogen oxygen release again, now you're mimicking soil that's, that's really vibrant. To get this really flowing, we're using really ancient dirt. So you mentioned that your garden is full of 100-year-old organic dirt. That gives me goosebumps. That's so freaking cool. The excitement that we have about the the science we're doing now, though, is we've we've gone deeper. The concern is that uh, even 100 years ago, this is, you know, you you beat some of the big herbicides and pesticides and everything else when you go back 100 years. And we can talk more about those in a few minutes. They're now ubiquitous in our environment. So hundred years is a very exciting jump. But interestingly, if we look at the fossil record of soil, the soil has been degrading in quality for millions of years. The biggest drop actually happened about 60 million years ago, where it went from these extremely deep topsoil levels that were so rich that they were growing ferns and other plants that would allow something like an Allosaurus or the Brontosaurus to survive on plants alone and support a biological body that is, you know, four to five times the largest elephants seen in our time. Their heads were slightly smaller than a a horse's head. So they weren't capable of taking in massive amounts of volume. They were taking in massive amounts of concentrated nutrients from plants that were growing in soils that we really have never been able to experience in human lifetimes. And so when you dive back into the fossil record 50, 60 million years old, you're getting a soil record. You're getting a biodiversity that has really not probably been seen since then. And so that's where we're drawing the liquid circuit boards from now. And so we've got these fossil layers out in Arizona in the desert that have stayed dry for, for millions of years now. And so we've prevented the, you know, the high levels of of herbicide, pesticide dumping that we can get in in more uh, rain drenched areas, especially the southern United States and in, in the East. Here, uh, we can see very high levels of herbicides and pesticides and all this. So, found some pristine soil in the fossil state, pulled that out, and we've been working with that. Now, the excitement. Go ahead.
1: When I look at this electrical side of things, for about 15 years on and off, I've experimented with taking carbon nanospheres, these these buckyballs, and even just activated charcoal for thousands of years has some properties like what you're talking about. Not the mineral richness, but just the ability to help the body electrically. Collagen protein helps the body carry electrons throughout the body. Different mechanism, different structure, and all that sort of stuff. But it seems like a lot of these... Either uh, ancient or the buckyballs are relatively new in terms of anti aging. They call them carbon 60 or C60 nanospheres. Um, yeah. It seems like we're all circling around the same, like the mechanisms for aging. Is there any relationship between these other forms of carbon and the stuff that you're working with? And by the way, we, you talked about uh, terahydrate, is the name of the stuff, but the, the stuff you make is called Restore. That's the stuff that, that um, I'm assuming you're talking about.
2: Yeah, okay. yeah. so yeah. the That's product that comes yeah. out of that is the Restore line, yeah. Okay, cool. And then we've got some lines for large animals and, and even companion pets and stuff like that. But So Restore is the human side of the equation with the dietary supplements, And but the terahydrate is now being seen to be helpful in all levels of biology through any mammal. So we've got lines for pets and large animals and the feed chain and everything else. And the reality is the, the goosebump moment here for us is that – the terahydrite family, you know, you, oh, so you, to answer your question first, so you, you're asking about the, the comparison between C60 and the carbon substrates that we would find in terahydrite enormously different. And okay. so C60 is um, similar to what we think of as like graphene in the in the industrial side of the equation. And so very organized structural carbon that's uh, a very uniform carbon structure where there's no oxygen or hydrogen binding within it. It acts as a cage, if you will. And I think you know, biology wise, people are saying that maybe they're great for capturing, you know, heavy metals and other, you know, potential toxins, things like that. When I see one of the C60 molecules, the first thing I think of is a laser chamber. I think that it's very likely that if there's benefit from C60 in the body, it's because it creates resonance chambers at the atomic physics level that's allowing you to kind of stay in coherent vibration because we're not really made of molecules we're actually made of atoms and we are just vibrational beings and so i think longevity we're going to find out has almost nothing in the end to do with the human cell and we're taking all these supplements to do human cells and then in the end we're going to find out yeah, if the biology is starting to crap out, we're way downstream of the real problem, which is we are resonating incorrectly. <laughs> and so that's, that's the interesting phenomenon I think we're moving towards as a, a science community. But in the meantime, we're finding all of these pieces in the biology, which are pretty big levers. And I, I love what you guys are doing the biohacking thing, because you guys keep finding new levers to push on to, to manipulate the biology back into a coherent you know, and cooperative structure uh, to, to support that longevity goal. So different structure here. So instead of having resonance chambers of carbon, it's going to come down to electrical exchange from the release of hydrogen or absorption of hydrogen on the oxygen molecule that's hanging off the end of the carbon. In this case, I think the primary role of the carbon has nothing to do with resonance chambers or electrical energy. It's simply to keep the molecule itself stable because you want to be able to hold that oxygen no matter what acid it's going through, no matter how acid or alkaline the environment. It allows that molecule to travel long distances and and keep in in touch or the capacity for this oxygen-hydrogen binding.
1: One of the things that stood out to me, and I'm, I'm in this unusual place where I literally talked to hundreds of, of doctors and healers and just people who are clinically seeing things. And a statistically significant number of them were like, Dave, you should look at this restore stuff. So I, you know, I did a little bit of diligence and, and looked around it. And what I'm hearing is people saying things like, Leaky gut goes away. Uh, People get more tolerant of gluten and even things like autism and diabetes and Crohn's and all all these things are getting better, which to me leads uh, leads me to, to believe instead of looking at like a high level, this specific disease, you're looking at a fundamental mechanism that's underlying many different diseases. And in my mind, that's usually mitochondria, but it's certainly redox signaling is part of mitochondria, but there might be something else going on. So you found that that by giving this molecule to people, uh, at least when when doctors give this molecule to people, um, they're seeing all sorts of just distributed stuff get better. The mechanism action there is what you just described. It's that you think that it's essentially helping molecules hold together better while they're doing what they do?
2: I think in this case, the carbon structure is just holding that single molecule together that's allowing for this communication to do. What we think we have found here, and this is going to take the rest of my career to prove out because it's a complete change in our understanding of how human biology happens, but that keeps happening under the microscope every day in our labs. So this, you know, now dates back almost seven years ago when we started putting this under microscopes. I, I was already consuming it because I, had, you know, had some very exciting initial results right in my clinic uh, in myself we had some objective measures basically some biohacking tools um, similar to what you guys are using and was seeing almost instantaneous changes and so I was taking the compound we were starting to sell biology experiments I was starting to you know re- reunite with uh, some of my colleagues at the University of Virginia to access some of the capacity for their thought processes around what this thing could potentially do. But the goosebump moments that were really unfolding at this point was that all all of my cancer research and before that, all my research in neurobiology, I was really into neurochemistry and the effects of the hormone system on how it does neuroplasticity before my cancer research. And so whether we're talking about the brain or we're talking about my diabetes management in the clinic or the cancer. All of that understanding that I had gotten through all my research and intense study and blah, 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 was all discovered or learned, if you will, in a sterile Petri dish. We have never studied a human cell when it's in touch with the potential of a communication network that's extra human. And that's what this molecule family suddenly offered is what if the bacteria and fungi are talking and what if they can talk to us? and perhaps oh, more importantly than that, what if they are talking to our mitochondria. Yes, And that was where all the, all the dots suddenly
1: lined up. How do you believe that conversation happens via what signaling pathways?
2: So it turns out that it returns right back to this context, context of redox signaling, our electrical exchange across hydrogen molecules. And so what we're showing now and this this happened almost instantaneously in our labs you put it into renal tubule cells for safety trials. So, you know, when I was developing chemotherapy, you know, same thing. So we basically used the gold standard of toxicity. We were using proximal renal tubule cells, which are the canary in the coal mine of the human body. They're the most sensitive to toxicity. And so, with the first batches of Restore, we were running it across uh, proximal renal tubule cells, just to make sure there wasn't any toxicity, so that I could start putting it into my patients, and. You know, we went for the money because I had no money, and so I, I went for twenty percent concentration of this compound. That means you would you know, equivalent of replacing twenty percent of your blood volume with with this <laughs> liquid, and that's so a lot. you, you kind of go for a, a money shot because you you got one shot at, at studying this. That's that twenty percent is about the threshold where water. If you you replace twenty percent of your your bloodstream with free water, that's when it starts to kill cells, renal tubule cells in in in, in particular. And so I knew that if we could be as safe as water, then I'd be really confident that we could move forward. We put in 20% and something totally bizarre happened on about three different levels. But the first thing that was obvious is the cells stopped dying. We we expanded the life of renal tubule cells by 15% longer than they'd ever been measured in cell culture. <laughs> that that number, that lifespan of a renal tubule cell culture hadn't changed since 1969. Did, so, you,
1: did you publish those results?
2: No, the mitochondrial stuff's not not published at all because it's still totally doubted. I mean, we can, okay. we could throw it at peer-reviewed journal articles all the time, and they're going to say nobody has defined a redox signaling molecule from bacteria. And so this journey, and I've seen this journey. I was a bit part of this journey. Whereas once you find something in the lab, it takes twenty years before somebody's going to actually put that into clinical use. Not believe. us biohackers. I know. That's why I'm talking <laughs> to you. That's why I stayed up till midnight to give you this information because you guys are going to change the paradigm. And so, so the exciting thing that we were seeing is immediately the proximal retubule cells live 15% longer. And we knew there was nothing in the substrate that I just gave in that could potentially that could do that alone. There was no way that there was something in the terahydrate molecules that could deliver longevity. It meant that there was something fundamentally changing inside the human cell that was inducing, taking the stress off the cell that it would live longer. And that stress, I knew because of my chemotherapy research, is from the redox signaling from the mitochondria. And so when a mitochondria starts to sense stress in the environment, it will start to call for help. And it does that by sending out free radicals, these reactive oxygen species. Hydroxyl free radicals are kind of the most extreme version of the help signal. And so we were starting to see, you know, starting to make that connection of, okay, if they're living longer, we must be seeing a decrease in ROS. We must be seeing the mitochondria reduce their their call for help. And in fact, that's exactly what we saw. Within three to five minutes of the proximal renal tubules, seeing this, we'd see an immediate drop in healthy proximal renal tubule cells of their ROS, and then it would stabilize at about 15 to 20% lower than their baseline. And so as predicted, for longevity to happen in those proximal renal tubules, we'd have to take the stress off the cell. What it immediately told me is that our first hunch that the three-dimensional structure on that molecule looked a heck of a lot like the chemotherapy that was regulating mitochondrial function was likely right and so we started to really start to gain confidence very quickly that this wasn't a molecule that was going to do anything to the proximal renal of cell Very, very much different than anything else I was using in clinic. I was using high doses of vitamin D, curcumin, you know, a whole list of alpha-lipoic acid, you know, CoQ10, you know, PQQ, all of these things that we knew were forcing little specific pathways. This molecule family was totally different. It's totally passive. It's not trying to do anything to the proximal renal tubular cells. What we intentioned with the creation of this product is can you simply keep it so neutral, so equal in its redox potential, exactly the same number of electrical uh, donors as absorbers, that all it does is act as a wireless communication network through the system to amplify the message that one part of the cell is trying to send to another part of the cell. And that's the magic that we struck on, really by sheer dumb luck, or maybe just sheer really good intention. We really intentioned to find something that was so neutral That would move into the environment and just like your cell phone we see this phenomenon so a cell phone all the computer in there has this incredible transmission and reception capacity you can talk all over the world at any time of day on that thing amazing communication device until you're more than seven miles from the closest cell phone tower and suddenly that thing's rendered useless as a communication tool and it becomes isolated you can't talk to your friends etc but more importantly for the cell phone, it can't update its software. It can't defractionate and it's gonna to start to accumulate injury.
0: It's, and you've
2: experienced this with your laptop or other computers is if you get disconnected from the network, you start to accumulate damage within the operating system. Dude. You get fragmented, you get dysfunction. That's exactly what's happening to the acceleration of the aging process that we see happening in this chronic disease epidemic. So for, People are getting disconnected from their own message.
1: For uh, people listening, uh, it turns out my background is in network engineering. Like, like how do we build the Internet (laughs) the way we do it today? And we've actually applied a lot of the network engineering things, packet loss and things like that, to cellular biology now. In fact, we use Shannon's Law, which comes straight out of TCPIP research uh, to prove that mitochondrial communication can and does happen. And, And something weird happens with your cell phone. When you move away from these these antennas, the further away you get, the more you get something called packet loss. What that means is that your cell phone sends something, but it doesn't get there, so it has to send it again. And when it does that, it uses more of the cell phone's battery. So if you're in a place with a weak signal, your cell phone goes dead halfway through the day. If you're in a place with a strong signal, your cell phone basically uses less power to communicate. And what you're describing with the, the molecules, the terahydrate, Uh, that's in Restore, is you're describing this idea that, okay, all of a sudden now you can send a message and it never gets lost. And if people read Headstrong, uh, uh, my book about mitochondria, Uh, I talk about how an electron comes in from food and it essentially gets used and it goes out in air. And if you're perfectly efficient at using those, your cells are working really, really well. And as you become less effective at using those, those electrons leak out into your system and they cause inflammation, which is a sign of mitochondrial dysfunction and is underlying every chronic disease of aging that you can think of. So what's going on here is if you can get a better signal, so every electron that comes in goes out where it's supposed to instead of leaking into your tissues – you end up with a, a creature that's going to live a lot longer. Or if it's a cell phone, the battery's going to last all day long. And it, it's the same thing. And it's fascinating that you basically found a way to we'll call it dope the antenna here so that you can, get, uh, you can get the signal between the cells more effectively and more efficiently. At least that's what you think you found, right?
2: Yeah. And so then the story got much cooler very quickly. So we saw a change in raw signaling, which is profound. So now we're taking a sterile liquid that has no bacteria and fungi. All we're doing is extracting the communication network that's made by the bacteria and fungi. And then we're putting it into, again, a sterile environment of the human cell and it immediately creates shift at the mitochondria level. So that's, aha, blow your mind, number one. But number two, within minutes of that, we were seeing changes in protein synthesis from the DNA of the human cell. And so suddenly we saw this cascade of bacteria and fungi controlling in seconds to minutes Mitochondrial activity, if you will, stress level up or down, and immediately thereafter, a shift in the genomics of the human cell. And so this suddenly connected my cancer research conundrum as okay, here I'm understanding cancer as a genetic disease, and human genes turn off, and your cancer suppressor genes fail, and your cancer, your pro oncogenes turn on, and you get a, a cancer. But the UCLA and UCSF guys are telling me that there's some correlation between bacteria in your gut and what cancer you're going to get. And suddenly this answered the whole thing of, oh, my gosh, if you have a screwed up ecosystem in your gut and you start to get perturbation in any particular direction, you get a loss of this ecosystem, you get an overgrowth of this part of the ecosystem. What's going to happen is you're going to suddenly lose a part of that wireless communication network and you're going to become vulnerable at multiple levels within the human body. And this is why the epidemics are all happening simultaneously, is that we all have slightly different vulnerabilities. If you've been tracking this fascinating world of neural disease right now, it's pretty phenomenal. Right in the middle of 1990s, suddenly the trajectory of Parkinson's disease in males in the developed world started going very steeply up. At the same time, the Alzheimer's in women started going up. But in both cases, the Parkinson's rate in men ha- or in women hasn't changed and the Alzheimer's rate in men haven't changed. So we had a gender difference in neuro- degenerative neurologic disease at the same time. And so we, sh- we, we demonstrated that there was, you know, some shift in the environment in the mid 1990s that led to a a shift in the microbiome that manifested different vulnerabilities within the brains of males versus females. That's just one example of what happened. But of course, at the same time, we had a huge uptick of autoimmune disease, a huge uptick in cardiovascular disease, cancer, and all the rest. And so what we're now seeing is, wow, if we start to damage that microbiome, if we go after certain chunks, we're gonna start to lose parts of this wireless communication network And the human system is going to suddenly start losing the packets, like you say. You start dropping packets. You start dropping the, the pieces of information. Now the human cell doesn't know that it needs to repair until it's too late. And when it's too late, it can no longer trigger apoptosis or programmed cell suicide because the mitochondria are damaged. And so what were we seeing under the microscope that led us to believe that the DNA were doing something different? What we saw is the extracellular matrix around the human cells start to go into production. Never in the history of, of basic science has ever, anybody seen proximal renal tubule cells express extracellular matrix and create cohesive kidney tissue. There's never been. Within minutes of the bacterial communication network hitting those renal tubule cells, they started making extracellular matrix, started combining... Tight junctions across them going into three dimensional structures, gap junctions, which look like fiber optic cables, by the way, start connecting through there, and you got this cohesive membrane of kidney tissue in a petri dish never seen before. Phenomenally powerful. And, and the fact that that happened meant that the DNA was unraveling certain segments that would expose promoter regions, bind the appropriate co coactivators, start to build m- messenger RNA that would exit the nucleus, turn into a protein in the cytoplasm, export to the s- membrane surface, become extracellular matrix that would intelligently combine with the extracellular matrix that's now preparing on the other side from another renal tubule cell, make a cohesive Velcro structure that would act as a spot weld. I mean... It, it's I wish I could really download so that, just the craziness of, of how complex this was at this,
1: at this point. Like, can I get an IV bag of it and inject some <laughs> into my cerebral spinal fluid? Uh, you know, like that's how I, I literally think like, OK, yeah. so, sounds good. Well, you
2: um, and I are very similar. So I spent about a year <laughs> IVing this stuff in my clinic. <laughs> so and so
1: you can actually do it by IV. I, I was kind of joking, but I'm like, is it sterile? Because I would. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, you
2: know, I would not recommend you do it. And the reason is because we're finding out it works better where. And it ends up being obvious.
1: In the gut, because of the gut biome, I'm guessing. Dang it.
2: That's that's where it's supposed to originate from. And so after all this time of probably putting my life at risk by starting IVs and pumping this stuff into my body, because it seems sterile, but every time you (laughs) you stick an IV in your arm, you Uh, make yourself prone to something.
1: I I might have injected a few things, I I hear you. And so no, nothing that makes me high, by the way, as just I was that was me
2: still <laughs> from my idiocy, I started to realize, you know what, this stuff's going to work better in the gut because we were seeing magic happen by just giving it orally. And so we backed off of doing any IV therapy many years ago and, and we're finding the magic really happens by re- putting it in the gut and letting rectal? the bacteria and fungi do its thing.
1: Uh, do people use it rectally? That seems like that would be at least as effective.
2: Very effective. Yeah. So we do mm-hmm. certainly. I mean, even something simple as just spraying it topically for hemorrhoids is extremely effective. Uh, we, we have a nasal product that's become one of our fastest growing global products. It's everybody has nasal sinus post nasal drainage. The, okay. the crap that's going through your nasal sinuses is terrifying. I, uh, um, I just so as as I, you I want in to bring break-
1: it. I want to break in for a second there. Uh, just people listening, like Zach and I don't have any financial arrangement. Here. He, he, I just brought him on because he knows, he knows what he's talking about. And yeah, he's selling some stuff. And my experience is that the people who believe enough in what they're doing to put everything on the line and, and make a product, I tend to listen to him. But yeah, so, so Zach does have a product here and I'm actually interested in it. And I've at this point probably... I drink one bottle of your stuff. It's it's like three quarters gone, sitting on my dining room table. So I can't tell you that this stuff works. I can tell you the science is really intriguing here. But just so you know, yes, there's a commercial interest from Zach, uh, but not from me. Like he's just here to share info. Uh, just so that's all on the table.
2: Absolutely. And and what what we'll talk about as we close up the session is well, how do we really bring this stuff in because. I believe it's the science of what we've discovered that's going to change the world and not a product. And we're going to talk about what do you do once the wireless communication network is there because you're not done. This is a sterile product. We're saying that the microbiome governs everything. What do you do from there? That's the most potent reason I'm here with you guys is because you guys have a large enough community that you know consumers are ultimately the most powerful force of change that we have. I am completely hopeless that the government is going to make the changes fast enough to save our soils. To save humanity, I think that you guys can be a part of that force. And so, you know, all of my income comes from my own operations, my clinic, my basic side of operations, our research and development, our products for animals and beyond. And so, you know, I'm not paid by any third party organizations, but I am absolutely fully invested and have. Huge conflict of interest and in everything. I'm you, saying you've got, na- to you've got nothing thing. to
1: apologize for. Not on this show for doing that. I, no, <laughs> okay. apologize at all. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> I'm,
2: I'm excited to keep yeah. keep the conversation going beyond the product. Exactly. So we'll we'll keep diving in uh, to the protein
1: structure if you want. Well, there, there's protein structures. The other thing I I want to ask you about, and this is something that's I've been writing a lot about. This is we are doing things to destroy our soil because. Uh, we basically say, oh, that only affects bacteria. Therefore, it doesn't affect us, which is just a false assumption. <laughs> but but spraying glyphosate on soil disrupts bacteria in the soil that now we know talks to your gut biome. And it also disrupts your gut biome, uh, which then is going to just roll up throughout the system and generate all these weird problems. So what's your take on you mentioned earlier pesticides and herbicides and things like that. Like, What's your take on what that's doing to the soil and then what that's doing to our mitochondria?
2: Yeah, I got to give a shout out to Dr. John Gilday. He's my chief science officer, one of the most brilliant PhDs in the, in, on the planet. And he's the one that really has untangled this story on glyphosate. Um, better better than perhaps anybody else on the planet. But uh, we've published some papers on this. You can find some peer-reviewed journal articles on the role of glyphosate and uh, this gut protein structure and everything else in the microbiome um, on our websites. But uh, John uh, really helped tease this out early on when he saw what was happening with this communication kind of phenomenon where we were seeing genomic changes in, in gut lining. Because after the renal tubules, we went right to the intestines because obviously the microbiome is, dominates there. And so we were really curious to start to tease out the relationship between the microbiome and this extracellular matrix protein structure of the human gut. And so glyphosate, we're, we'll start at the soil. So glyphosate, if you're not familiar with it, is the active ingredient in a famous weed killer called Roundup. Roundup, uh, made by a company you've probably never heard of called Monsanto. Roundup got patented in 1974, and went on the market in 1976. Uh, killed everything it touched, right? It killed any weeds, it killed crops, killed anything. It's a, it's an organophosphate is the the form of this molecule. Its backbone is glycine, which is a critical amino acid for building human bodies and any other biology.
1: And that's what's in collagen, primarily, by the way.
2: Yes, exactly. And so you take a, a, a fundamental structure that is critical for the ultrastructure of your human body, and then you adulterate it with a phosphate group on one side and an amine on the other group, which is a nitrogen. Uh, combination. And so you get this uh, around the the glycine molecule and you create now an organophosphate. This is now in the same category of another famous chemical made by Monsanto, which is called or- Agent Orange. And if you're really young, you maybe haven't heard of this, but in the Vietnam War, we were dumping enormous amounts of this Agent Orange on the jungles of Vietnam. And we were trying to defoliate the jungle so we could see the enemy and shoot them down with helicopters and everything else. And so we were in this environment of kind of killing plants with chemicals. And then the war got over. And by that time, we'd found out that Agent Orange was causing cancer and all kinds of horrible things on people's skin. So they thought, okay, it's a little too toxic there. So they were looking for a less toxic version of Agent Orange to kill weeds. Great business plan because nobody likes weeding their garden. So they thought if we could just have a chemical you could spray on your weeds, we'd make tons of money. And so they made this chemical. And uh, interestingly, they did not patent it as a weed killer. And in fact, they went on to repatent this thing many times and never in its lifespan as a chemical has been patented as a weed killer. It's been patented primarily as an antibiotic, antifungal, uh, antiviral. Every single celled organism that thing touches, it kills. And it kills plants as well. And so number one thing is that glyphosate, which is now the number one chemical on the planet, four and a half billion pounds of glyphosate dumped (sighs) annually around the globe now. And unfortunately, it's a water soluble toxin, which should never happen in nature. So we had a water soluble toxin, meaning it's going to go to every level of the environment. It's in the air you breathe. It's in 75 percent of the air in the US, 75 percent of the rainfall. It's it's penetrated every level because of its water nature. And that means it's doing the same thing in your body. It's in your bloodstream, it's in your urine, it's in your cerebral spinal fluid. It's going everywhere as this water soluble chemical that's all over the place now. It's in every bite of food we eat. I believe it's in every bite of, you know, every drink of water. It's everywhere. So we've created this ubiquitous antibiotic. And so the first thing that we've done with glyphosate is to begin to really sterilize the environment, starting with our soils, but obviously as soon as we start to ingest that or breathe that, we sterilize our nasal sinuses, we begin to sterilize the gut. And what you end up with are the few organisms that can exist in the face of that chemical. This is very much like a hospital where you dump a bunch of antibiotics on the population, you end up with antibiotic resistant bacteria that dominate a hospital. So you get MRSA, VRE, and all these horrible in- invasive pathogens. Same thing's happening now in our human gut. The last vestiges of, of survival in this environment of glyphosate are things like Klebsiella, Clostridium difficile, yeasts. You know, the Candidas and stuff like this. These guys are not bad guys. They didn't show up to attack us. And I think that we even in integrated medicine, we, we think of yeast or Candida as a bad guy and we need to kill it. Or we think of lime as a bad guy. We need to kill it. These are simply the last survivors, guys we got to love these guys as much as anything else because they're there just trying to create a little bit of microbiome for us. These are the tough survivors. We need to start respecting them and realizing, okay, these are the the weeds that have survived. They're trying to bring some nutrient into the environment for our body. And so we're going to start to make this shift, I think, to realize that what we think of as pathologic states of the microbiome right now are simply the survivors of living in a glyphosate-rich environment.
1: That sounds bad. Uh, there's a reason I live on an organic, uh, an organic biodynamic farm on you know enough space that I don't get huge exposure, but I travel 125 plus days of the year, and so yep. I, I know I get a lot of this crap. And like, like we simply have to stop doing that. If you want to not weed, there's a simple answer. Use robots. They're happy to weed for you. And then, <laughs> like Seriously, that, that's how Monsanto can save their business models, just solar-powered robots that pull weeds. Then you can stop spraying crap on our soil. There you go, guys. No charge for that. Now, go out and do that and stop spraying crap in the environment that's supporting my biology. What are we going to do about that as people who are looking to live, you know, more than a hundred years and not get Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and every one of these other diseases that comes from a breakdown in communication and electrical generation networks in our bodies. I mean, you you know, more than the average bear out there, given your background, given all the research you've done. What are the best defense systems that we can have other than water filters?
2: Absolutely. So step one, again, is the microbiome, because we're now finding that there are species of bacteria and fungi that can break down glyphosate pretty effectively. And so I, I put all my hope right back in the into the microbiome that we're killing with this stuff. And so the way that I do this in my patients, is so we get the wireless communication network up and running, and then we get into as many environments as we can, because the nasal sinuses are actually, if you look at their structure, are built to be capturing microbiome. It's really cool. We have these turbinates inside of our nose that force a, a turbulent airflow through them, and it creates nitric oxide and a lot of other really critical things in biology with that turbulent flow. But I think the primary thing it does is we create a sticky mucosal surface in the sinuses, we force a turbulent airflow through it, and even the hair follicles that grow in there seem to be perfectly designed to grab aerobic and anaerobic bacteria from our environment. And so this is what I have my patients do. If you really wanna heal from your breast cancer or any other disease, you gotta get back in touch with nature. There's absolutely no product on the market that's gonna do it for you. You've got to re-engage with that biodynamic globe that we were born into. And that biodynamic environment is what's gonna heal you. And so the way in which you do this is seek out as many environments of Earth. So I've told you now that the whole Earth is sprayed with with glyphosate and everything else, but you're gonna find niche environments. And I I have to love the United States for this one thing, is Teddy Roosevelt, God bless him, put a hell of a lot of land under non-use. And so we have a lot of national parks that are not being visited right now. We are not visiting these places. And I invite you to go explore as many national parks as you can in the next couple of years because there are still some intact microbiome. I would tell you my top three favorites, except you all would show up there. And then it would. <laughs> but go find your own favorite few, because I guarantee you, you're going to find microbiome you have never experienced in your life. I'm so confident about that because most of us are living in city urban environments or rural farming environments that have not had steady healthy ancient ecosystems for not just decades but actually centuries you remember the whole dust bowl in history dust bowl was happening in the 1920s and 30s because we killed the topsoil before the herbicides and pesticides so we've been screwing up soil for a good long time not in the ecosystems of many of these parks and so find yourself some ancient parks and go and breathe we think of fermented foods and probiotics all of that is just spitting in the wind compared to the potential of just breathing good quality rich air with microbiome and so i have my patients go out to virginia beach and breathe there and then down southern virginia down to the swamps and then up into the appalachian trail be by this the waterfalls breathe ancient ecosystems you know along the east coast a huge hot spot is down in tennessee the great smokies one of the, the the most diverse ecosystems on the planet i travel as extensively as you do. And I try to make sure that at least part of that travel is taking me to far-flung places. Just came back from the Great Barrier Reef and started breathing air down there that I know I've never been exposed to. Some of the islands along the Barrier Reef I know have you know some f- profoundly ancient microbiome. And so you start going into these environments that you've never been and you're adding years to your life. I really have a s- profoundly strong conviction that the more you can breathe in new environments, the longer you're
1: going to live. One of the things uh, that I started doing, like to the point, it's one of my portfolio companies, I spray soil bacteria in my house. (laughs) It's called home biotic. And I do that because I know that unhealthy indoor environments, you get this toxic mold thing, which has had a profound effect on my health. Like that stuff can mess you up when you get water damage in your house. So I like where I'm sitting right now, I, I've I misted a bottle of homebiotic around and it's not a diverse ecosystem. It's basically seven species that I know eat mold to at least create a balance because I know a sterile environment's not good for me. Right. Is there something you can do? Like I, I've I've heard lots of people I haven't had great results with it, but I've heard lots of people talk about, you know, essential oils and terpenes as signaling molecules or is this straight up? You need like bacteria from all over the place.
2: You, you need it all. And th- okay. you know, this has been the limitation of our probiotic industry. You know you take three species or seven species okay. and then you multiply it to 35 to 50 billion. And now we have a couple on the market that are bragging a trillion copies of those bacteria. Well, now you're creating a monoculture. Yep. Uh, that's the opposite of what you're looking for as far as creating this biodiversity, which will then create the incredible diversity of the, the carbon molecules that will go on to be the communication network, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I applaud every effort to get bacteria in the environment. Oh, yeah. So I'm not saying, you know, stop the homebiotic. What, what What I would say is you're probably going to win the game. If you just take your shoes off, step outside and like your dog run around in the grass for five or 10 minutes and then come back in, you're going to be scuffing around in the dirt, you know, ideally playing with your kids or dog down in the dirt, you know, chasing each other around, tackling each other. This is how we grew up. You remember doing this. And now you look at a, a playground at an elementary school today and You're lucky to see a kid on a swing but you're certainly not seeing people wrestling around in the dirt anymore you know they're too worried about their designer jeans to get dirty or whatever it is and so we have separated ourselves from this just fundamental easy cheap frankly free mechanism of microbiome exchange which is touch mother earth you're in a very fortunate setting is that you got this huge garden of your own if you don't have a garden at home grow a plant put a pot out in front of the door, put a pot in the window in, the, in your kitchen, get a few plants growing around and make sure you touch it every day. One of my biggest passions right now is eating off the vine. You wanna get crazy with me, do this. It's, it'll make you giggle and laughter, I think, is one of our best longevity markers, but eat a tomato off the vine. It is a completely different experience than picking the tomato and then eating it half an hour later on your salad. There's going to be a layer of dust and this hairy kind of quality to the tomato before it's picked. It's got this little fur on it that I think is capturing microbiome and other things on it. And if you pluck it, there will be often a little spider web on it. Like there's biology on the surface of that tomato that you're missing. Otherwise, get crazy with it. It's fun.
1: It's funny. My, my kids, since they were very little, they just go out into the garden and they'll pick rosemary and oregano and mint. They just eat it. And uh, same way, like when I make a salad, at least during summer here, there's not much growing this time of year, but I'll, uh, literally, I just go out there with a pocket knife, whack off some of whatever it's going to be, throw it in the, uh, throw it in the blender. And that becomes our salad dressing. That's and, it. And it, it sounds weird, but I guess most people don't do that. It, it, it just tastes better when it's really fresh.
2: Really fresh is a game changer.
1: So now everyone listening to this, I, I would say ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of people, they simply are not gonna do that. They might have a plant, but they're living in a condo, you know, they're they're living in a in a high rise. I mean, can I, I I mean, should I be gathering a little baggie of freeze dried dirt everywhere I go and, you know, shaking it around my house? I, I, I mean, like, how are we going to go to Mars? Like, how are we going to get this on our space stations, which currently have four thousand species of bacteria growing in them? They just they just tested it finally. And like, oh, look, we have diversity. I'm like, you call four thousand diversity. Yeah, right. <laughs> so like, like, is there a way to transport this? Like, like if we are going to become a a multiplanetary species, if we're going to be able to live in the cities where the vast majority of people live, how do we get this into our bodies without having to go out and spend time in nature? Because frankly, there isn't that much space in nature for the number of people we have here. Like, it, is, is there a way to do this or are we all screwed?
2: Well, yeah, I, that's a big, big ethical humanitarian question right there. And I think the, the, the sad reality that, you know, I'm increasingly facing in, in my worldview is that we are going to lose a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of people that you know are screwed because, A, they're not going to have access to this information fast enough. Uh, B, they are going to feel hopeless or in, incapable of enacting something that would approach a, a solution for them in their lives. So um, sadly, we will lose a lot of people. I think we already have lost. I know that I've lost uh, hundreds and hundreds of patients over the last 18 years of being a doctor that should have lived longer or at least a much more peaceful uh, journey than than what they had so we're already losing them and we're going to lose them faster and faster with each given year uh, if we keep the current trajectory Are
0: you- what
2: i'm putting my hope in is that there's going to be a segment of us that communicate and push the envelope and dave you're you're a hero among us in in your rabid effort to get the information out to the public as quick as it is discovered and like i said in in academia it takes us 20 years to even approach that and so you're you're cutting that time of knowledge to delivery much like elon musk is changing that equation for space travel you know cut 90 percent of the the overhead and we're going to win the game And so you're doing that with information. And so we've been talking all about cell cell communication down the microbiome level. But the reality is this podcast, your your Bulletproof conferences, everything else is just you're a huge piece of that puzzle. And I don't do that to pump your ego up. But I'm using that as an example to everybody listening of you each are an epicenter of change. And I've met many of you at Bulletproof this last year here. In Pasadena, I was watching you guys pass through the booth and then come into my talk and everything else. There is an energy that you guys project that is atypical in the community right now. The vast majority of people are really sick right now. Your community is vibrating at an extremely high level because of the efforts you've put into your own human biology and the biophysics underneath that. And so what that means is each of you are becoming a massively powerful natives for change. And my conviction is that if we can start to communicate real respect and love for one another with that sort of high vibration, it's going to not just stop at the humans, but we're going to start to respect the environment at such that the environment is going to sweep right back in and heal the damage that we've done. We are going to redesign our cities, by the way. You're talking about people stuck in high rises. We're going to redesign structures. We're going to stop building huge, giant rectangles of drywall and call them homes. We're going to start putting microbiome highways into our sidewalks, into our road systems, into the foundations of homes, into the floors we walk on. We're going to have to re-engineer everything because I guarantee you we are – you know, one or two decades from losing it. At our current trajectory, if you saw my talk at Bulletproof, we're only 16 years away from hitting one in four kids with autism.
1: Yeah, a lot of yeah. people are, are worried about global overpopulation. And when I wrote my very first book, uh, The Better Baby Book, I'm like I'm not worried about a global population uh, boom uh, because our fertility is dropping so precipitously as a species. Yes. Give it a generation or two. We don't have to worry about having 7 billion people here. And like that is... Damn scary to say. That is just a fact, and I'm planning to be around to watch that. <laughs> like yeah. I, I'm going to be an outlier here, and I hope I'm not the only outlier, right? And and the knowledge that, that you're sharing, just with the hard science, way way deeper than I've gone. You know, it, it's been a long time since I worked in a lab, and my lab uh, was was been more full of uh, blinky lights and networking. <laughs> anyway, but you know th- that kind of knowledge. I have just met so many frustrated researchers and doctors and bioengineers saying I figured out something important and no one will listen until they're dead. And and yeah. the history of medicine is well all the old doctors die, new ones come in and then it changes. We don't have time to go through 20 generations of of medical professionals. Uh, to do this, so basically, it, it's one of those change or die scenarios here. Without trying to sound dire or anything, I, I think it's the best time ever to be alive because our ability to change is faster than it's ever been. Our ability to learn is faster than it's ever been. But uh, if you don't take advantage of that, you might not like you know what happens when you wake up one day and your legs don't work or whatever else happens because a network in your body broke down because you can't make energy anymore. Uh, and if you go, well, why? What did I do? Uh, there's lots of things that you probably did and and didn't do, but there are. Some things you can do that are probably protective, and they may not be, but they probably are, and they're worth doing if they're within reach for you. And I'm like, okay, I I don't really like getting on airplanes as much as I do. It would be more convenient to live in the middle of a city, but I think I'm making the right call for the long term. Uh, I don't know, though. I I mean, I don't think you know either at the end of the day. You're pretty strongly convinced, but there may be more, right?
2: Oh, I I hope we're just scratching the surface of of our potential. I'm right there with you then. I believe that nobody has defined the optimal uh, lifespan, let alone the optimal function that we could perform within that lifespan. It's clear that our human biology is dialed in for extremely productive long life. Uh, the, the, you know, I have, I'm run a hospice service for a lot of the last decade. And when you're running on hospice, it's not unusual for us to still meet patients that are 105 years old. You meet a 105 year old who's still sharp. It's a phenomenal thing to witness, but the interesting thing when they die a year or two later from just kind of slow demise, no specific disease, they just kind of turn off and shut down. Like you said, on their own terms, by their own means, uh, they kind of turn off the lights. At that moment, right before they decide they're going to go, every single organ system in their body is plumb full of stem cells that are ready to turn on and replace every tissue of their body. It doesn't matter how old we measure that biology to stem cells all over the body with the primordial knowledge of how to build that body from scratch over again with no injury within it that's our potential to rebirth 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 in the body instead of continuing to surrender to this decay process decay process decay process Like you said, I I don't have any confidence that I know the whole story at all. I'm profoundly blowing my mind just over the scratching the surface. you know. And so I can't wait for 10, 20 years down the road. And I'm extremely excited to be alive right now because it's not our population that's just going exponential. It's not just our diseases that are going exponential, our knowledge is going exponential. And our ability to communicate that knowledge through internet and everything else that's coming behind that super exciting. I think you know we're going to see an acceleration, obviously, of what this community knows, what the biohackers are doing. You guys are going to have to start having these conferences more frequently, I think, because the amount of information that's going to emerge every three months on this planet over the next five, 10 years is going to be mind boggling.
1: It it is indeed. Uh, We could go on and on, but we're coming up on the end of the show. And What I've been doing for the past uh, 450 or so episodes is I've asked uh, everyone uh, for a piece of advice. And if someone came to you tomorrow, Zach, and they said, "Look, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being," and and, I mean that opens it up to you know, there's psychology, there's uh, you know, biology, there's whatever else, but basically your path of of becoming someone who's changing the game in your field of of biology and medicine and healing. but Someone comes to you and says, I, I want to change the world in, in a similar way. Um, what are the three most important pieces of advice you'd have to offer them? What matters most?
2: Number one, you are enough. All right. Stop stressing yourself out. You're your worst enemy and you are your greatest advocate. And so step into your purpose and don't be afraid of it. Number one, you are enough. Number two, stop thinking of yourself as human. You have 70 trillion human cells, which is an impressive number, but you have 1.4 quadrillion bacteria, fungi, et cetera, and you have 14 quadrillion mitochondria living within you. You are, if anything, a vehicle for the microbiome to travel the world and communicate more broadly a purpose of life itself. I think if we stop thinking of ourselves as a human and start to think of ourselves as a connected biology into the entirety of Mother Nature, we're going to win the game on a bigger level. Last of all, we completely underestimate the power of love, which sounds completely cheesy for a doctor to be saying that, but I have seen it absolutely be the missing equation in all of this pursuit of longevity and the fight against disease and everything else. If you can biohack all day long and if you have not found pure love for yourself, you can't live that golden rule. You can't love others as you would yourself because you're not loving yourself. Fall deeply in love with yourself. And then let that love pour over into your environment, your kids, your pets, your community at large. And it it is, we. it sounds cheesy. It sounds like an emotion, but in fact, it isn't a vibration. And that's the last and third most powerful.
1: Yeah, that is absolutely real. And I'm, uh, thank you for saying that. Uh, but you forgot one thing. Uh, you, you fall in love with yourself, you know, your pets, your loved ones and your garden. <laughs> <All right>. Yes, <laughs> Um,
2: fantastic
1: on that note zach uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you i love how big you think where can people find out more about you like what what website should they go to and uh certainly it's okay to talk about restore or wherever they can get
2: yeah you know the easiest place just for all kinds of information from me as far as all the different things i got my hands in as far as the exciting projects is zachbushmd.com that kind of gives you just a download of my, my life and a snapshot. Um, the product is www.restore, the number four, life.com. Restoreforlife.com. Um, we're on Facebook, Twitter. You'll find us all over the place. But uh, Restoreforlife.com and Zach Bush MD will get you most of the information you're looking for.
1: All right. We'll include those in the show notes and on the blog and things like that. Thanks again for your work, Zach. Have a wonderful night late in New York City. Thank
2: you guys so much. I appreciate it.
1: If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Head on over to iTunes. You can go to bulletproof.com slash iTunes to make it easy and leave a review of the show that says you were inspired. Uh, you felt hopeful or maybe you just really decided to go for a walk in the park. Uh, whatever it is, uh, leaving a review is a way to tell Zach you did a good job and to tell me I'm doing a good job. And I'd be grateful if you'd take a second to do that. Bulletproof.com slash iTunes.
0: A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.